If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke in chapter 2. Luke in chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be in verses 8 through 21 this morning as we continue both our series in for Advent and our series through the Gospel of Luke. So we've looked at the birth narrative these last uh, month plus, and we're just going to keep going through Luke uh, next week, okay? So last week, bless you, last week we uh, looked at Luke 2, 1 through 14, and I told you there were going to be some overlaps, so we're going to look at 8 through 21 uh, this morning. Also behind me on the screen in my translation as well for you to follow along there. If you got it, say I got it. All right, let's read this together. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. <coughs> God's Word says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Amen. It's God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. So let's take a, a little poll. How many of you have a Christmas tree in your house? <laughs> okay. How many of you have taken it down already? No? Okay. Good. Not, not grouches, right? Now, how many of you know the origin of the Christmas tree? Okay, good. Well, the story of the origins of the fir trees being part of the Christmas tradition is really fascinating. The story goes that in the 8th century, there was an Englishman called Boniface, who was appointed missionary to Germany by Pope Gregory II, uh, who was also the one who gave Boniface that name. Well, Boniface was considered friendly but firm and had a gift of organization and had great success in Germany on his missionary uh, journeys, reaching the German people with the gospel. Well, Boniface had learned through his missionary journeys um, in Germany of a, a village called Geismar, and how in winter, the inhabitants of this village would gather around a huge old oak tree called the Thunder Oak, which was dedicated to the god Thor. You know Thor? You probably know him from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? And they would sacrifice a child to Thor at the base of this oak, okay, uh, to try to appease Thor. So they wouldn't have bad storms in the coming year. So they do this every winter solstice. So Boniface knew of this practice, 
and obviously thought it was barbaric, right? And of course, he loathed the idolatry they were practicing, and he wanted to destroy the oak. Something that the people of Geismer said that Boniface's God could not do, okay? And he wanted to convert the town. So off Boniface went to Geismer with some companions, and they showed up on Christmas Eve as the townspeople were gathered at the Thunder Oak, and as the child sacrifice was beginning, okay? And Boniface's traveling companions were understandably nervous as they approached the village, but Boniface steeled his nerves, and as they were getting near, Boniface raised up a cross that he had with him for everyone to see, and he yelled for all the townspeople to hear, here is the thunder oak, and here is the cross of Christ shall break the hammer of the false god Thor. And then Boniface and his friends pulled out axes and began to cut down the thunder oak. And they succeeded because the town people were dumbfounded. They couldn't believe that this was happening. And the tree falls as the people watched. Well, the story goes that after the mighty oak was felled, there was a small fir tree that was freshly exposed from the removal of the thunder oak. And Boniface pointed at the fir tree, and this is what he said. He said, this little tree, a young child of the forest, shall be your holy tree tonight. It is the wood of peace. It is the sign of endless life, for its leaves are evergreen. See how it points towards heaven. Let this be called the tree of the Christ child. Gather about it, not in the wild wood, but in your own homes. There it will be shelter, no deeds of blood, but loving gifts and rites of kindness. Then he shared the gospel with these townspeople in the coming years. Surprisingly, they did not kill him. And he baptized almost everyone in the village. And this is how the Christmas tree began to be incorporated into Christmas festivities as parents used them as an illustration to tell their kids about the incarnation of Jesus. But what this story is also a great example of is someone who has heard about what God has done through Christ has been redeemed by his work and has responded to the gospel with joy and boldness and a desire to spread the news of the Savior of the world coming and taking on flesh and living and dying for sinners and idolaters. In fact, these are the themes we see in our text this morning as well. We see a declaration of who this baby is that has been born and then we see people responding to this earth-shattering news. So in our time together, let's simply walk through this text and let's just point out some truths and applications as we go, okay? So as noted last week, Jesus' birth is presented in verse 7, which we didn't read, with simplicity, briefly, and described in unadorned terms because the owner of everything that exists arrives without pretense. Plus, as we saw, nearly everything about the birth narrative points to Jesus' arrival being in the context of humility and poverty because that's who he came to be the champion for. So in verse 8, we're taken from the stable to a field near Bethlehem where we are told some shepherds were watching over their flocks, as shepherds are wont to do. It is then that the sky fills above them with a brightness from heaven, and they're afraid because who would not be afraid, right? Everybody be afraid. Then appears an angel, maybe our friend Gabriel, we're not told, and he announces to them that the, he brings good news of great joy that is for who? All people. And this is the news. 
Christ the Lord, the Savior, the eternal Davidic King, has broken into space and time to bring peace to those who humbly see their lowly estate and their need for salvation and their hunger and their need for rescue that comes from outside of themselves. Now already, we see a lot of important things to ponder. For one, we should see again and be surprised by, the scandalized by, the way that God has chosen to unfold his plan to the world. Not only does the plan involve the creator God becoming an incarnate baby, not only does it involve conception by the Spirit, not only does it happen in a small town in a room where animals are kept, not only is the first throne of the incarnate Christ a stone-feeding trough, but the first ones being told of the birth of Christ are who? Shepherds. Now, when we think of shepherds, we might have a relatively favorable view of them, right? Because we think of maybe like Psalm 23. Uh, We picture the nativity story being acted out maybe by children, right? And a few of the kids dressed in ill-fitting bathrobes with tea cloths around their heads, right? Playing shepherds like we see in Charlie Brown. In this case, our view of shepherds is favorable, adorable kids playing a part in a low-key retelling of the familiar Christmas story. But shepherds were not highly favored in this culture, Okay. Russ Ramsey explains it like this. The shepherd's life was ironic. Their job was to care for the animals that would be sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. Yet because of their handling of these dirty creatures, they themselves were unclean and thus prevented from keeping ceremonial law. And because they were ceremonially unclean, they were often regarded as untrustworthy, irreligious, and poor in reputation. So why, of all people announced the birth of Christ in this splendid fashion to a group of unknown sheep herders. You can probably guess why, right? Because we are being told that the recipients of this message represent all people. Shepherds picture the lowly and the humble who respond to God's message favorably. People who know they are unimpressive and weak and needy and helpless apart from a miraculous work of the Lord. See, This story, and everything we've seen in Luke so far, is full of the miraculous, yes? Truly remarkable things are happening here. But I want to suggest that the most improbable miracle before us is not that an older barren couple become pregnant with John, or that God became incarnate, or that the heavens were open, or that angels talked to some fellows in a field. All of that is child's play for so great a God although they are indeed miraculous, and they should astound us. But the most miraculous thing here, the miracle of miracles, is verse 11, that this is for you. And here's a Savior to save you. And here's a Lord to lead you. And verse 14, here is peace between you and God. The miracle of miracles is that God would save us. We don't deserve that at all. I mean, the fact that Jesus is Savior, you just think about the titles that these angels give. The fact that Jesus is Savior means we need what? Saving. The fact that Jesus is Lord means we need leading. We need a king because we are bad at being lords of our own lives. The fact that he brings peace with God means that we are by nature at enmity with him, and we cannot reconcile without his intervention. And consider the bright light in the midst of this darkness of night. Can you picture it? 
<coughs> it probably went from being pitch black in the countryside of Palestine to being so bright in their immediate area that it was like daylight. We're meant to see that and visualize the contrast between the night and being in the light from God's glory. Because the light itself is dawned in the form of a person, two people, like Zachariah said, like you and me, who, without the light of Christ, are sitting in darkness in the shadow of death. We should never, ever, 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 ever in our whole lives move past the awe and wonder that we, of all people, could be brought near to God. The miracle of miracles is that I have been saved by the initiative and grace and mercy of a God who would be well within his means and rights to crush me as a rebel, and he wouldn't lose an ounce of justice doing so. But he wasn't content with that, and so he came and he did all this and more to get to me. That's a love and kindness that I can't fathom. That's a gift unlike anything I'll ever receive. It says it's Christmas. That's the easiest illustration, right? The greatest gift. Is there any other gift that could touch that? But who receives a gift so astounding that it leaves them flat? Who receives a present so amazing that it literally changes their life forever? You ever got an earthly present that you could say that of? There's nothing to compare it to. But you know what I thought of, though, when I was meditating over this all week, I thought of the movie A Christmas Story. That's a classic, right? Did you guys watch it for 24 hours when it was on TNT? No? <laughs> well, do you remember how all Ralphie wanted was what? Red Ryder BB gun, right? And he was obsessed with getting this thing. Well, Christmas comes and all the presents get open, right? But there's no Red Ryder BB gun. Until his dad pulls out the one more gift, right? And he finally got it. The gift of his dreams. Well, do you remember how the movie ended? It ends with Ralphie snuggled up in his bed, and he's hugging this thing, right, this BB gun. And you remember the movie is being narrated by Ralphie as an adult. And, and this is what the adult Ralphie says as we see nine-year-old Ralphie hugging his Christmas gift. He says, next to me in the bl- blackness lay my oil blue steel beauty. The greatest Christmas gift I had ever received or ever would. Gradually, I drifted off to sleep, pranging ducks on the wing and getting off spectacular hip shots. <laughs> so this gift he received when he was nine, even as an adult, he looks back and he says, this is the greatest gift I have ever or will ever receive. In other words, he hearkens back and back, Right? and back and back, and draws off and finds safety and comfort and wonder all these years later that he got the gift, and he's thinking nothing will ever, ever top this. I wonder if there isn't a lesson in there for us and our wonder at the Christmas story of God coming in flesh to be our Savior, King, Lord, friend, champion, and atoning sacrifice. Should we ever move past the wonder of our conversion? Shouldn't we look back at the gift that is God incarnate, born to die for us, coming to live with us, bringing us in and say how marvelous, how incredible, how life-altering and world-shattering I will draw off this forever and ever. Nothing will ever top the gift of having Christ. Shouldn't that be our response as long as we live? 
I shared with you this uh, quote from uh, a couple weeks ago from Tim Keller, but it bears repeating. He said, no Christian should ever be far from this astonishment that I, I of all people, should be loved and embraced by his grace. He said, I would go so far as to say that this perennial note of surprise is a mark of anyone who understands the essence of the gospel. If Christianity is something done for you and to you and in you, then there's a constant note of surprise and wonder. So if someone asks you if you're a Christian, you should not say, of course. There should be no of courseness about it. It would be more appropriate to say, yes, I am, and that's a miracle. Me, a Christian, who would have ever thought it, yet he did it, and I am his. So we must see this, these shepherds as representatives of us. And place ourselves in this story and be amazed that Christmas happened for us. This is good news of great joy for you, friends. In fact, let's try this. Look, look down at your text. Open your Bible again. Hopefully you didn't close it. Why would you? Right. Uh, let's read 2, 10 through 12 out loud together. Except every time you see the word you, Y-O-U, say your name instead. Okay? Let's try it. 2, 10 through 12. Every time you see Y-O-U, put your name in it and read it out loud. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths laying in a manger. This birth is for you. Luke means for you to identify with the shepherd's perspective as they hear the good news. The invitation is here for you to hear the good news with the shepherds and say, I am more deeply sinful than I ever dared believe, yet I am more loved and accepted in Christ than I ever dared hope. But Luke also intends for us to see, not only are we like the shepherds in that we are outsiders who need this announcement of Christ proclaimed to us so that we can be brought in, but that we are also in need of a shepherd. See, we might tend to focus on the fact that the shepherds are unexpected recipients of the birth announcement of the Savior of the world, that they are outsiders, that they are representatives of the weak and the outcast and the marginalized that Christ came for, all of which is true. But we must not miss the fact that shepherds are here because they point to the fact that Jesus will be the great shepherd for his people. We're meant to see that through the birth of Christ, God is providing us with a shepherd king that we so desperately need. And you think about these two things, shepherd and king, and they might seem very different images, but really they're similar. In fact, they're two sides of the same coin. And we see this picture in many places in the Old Testament and its promises of the Messiah to come. Think of how in chapter 1, verse 32, and chapter 1, verse 69, we're told that this child would sit on the throne of his father, David, and how he would be uh, from the house of David, and how here in chapter 2 we're reminded that Bethlehem is the city of what? <laughs> David. And consider how we were introduced. Do you remember how we were introduced to David in 1 Samuel 16? The, the prophet Samuel is told by the Lord to go to Bethlehem, right? And there you find Jesse, and you'll find the next king. 
So Samuel goes, and the people are like weirded out by Samuel coming, right? Because when a prophet usually comes to your town, this is bad news. But he says, I come in peace. And he finds Jesse, and one by one, do you remember the story, right? One by one, his sons are brought before Samuel, and one by one, God is telling Samuel what? That's not the guy, right? Jesse brings him the big sons and the good-looking sons and all the ones you would expect to be the king type, right? Over and over and over until seven passed before him, and Samuel's like, is, there, is this it? <laughs> right? Is this all? And Jesse's like, well, there's one more. But where is he? He's the youngest, and he's out hanging out with who? The sheep, right? <clears throat> you think that's on accident? And of course, this is David who was anointed king, so the one anointed king was unexpected. And when he was called, he was out being a shepherd, which foreshadows how he will be in his kingly office. Then in Samuel 2, 2 Samuel 7, we have the Davidic covenant which God promises a king will come from David's line and he will be an eternal king over an eternal kingdom. And this eternal king will be a shepherd like David and a king like David, but infinitely better and his rule will never end. Further, you remember last week we mentioned Micah 5, which 5-2 is where the prophecy regarding the Messiah being born in Bethlehem is located. Well, a few verses after that prophecy, still in Micah 5, it says that the future king will be a shepherd who who shepherds his flock in the strength of the Lord with majesty and with glory, and he'll expand his kingdom, and he will cause his people to flourish. This all points to Jesus, who will be a shepherd king. So the shepherds, being the first outsiders to hear the birth announcement of Jesus, not only points to who is welcome in this child's kingdom, but that the child himself will be the shepherd king that they need. Like, think of one of the most famous messianic prophecies, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. We're told the coming Messiah will bear our grief, will carry our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquity. But why? Because Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. So God caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Messiah. Do you see? Jesus is a shepherd king because we are in desperate need of both. Don't you agree? We need him for protection and provision and guidance, which is what both a good king and a good shepherd do. We are the sheep. Yes? We are the ones who had gone astray. We are the ones who have gone each to his own way. We are not fit to be our own shepherds. So what do we need? We need someone else to provide and guide and protect us. And Luke 2 is telling us that we have that in this Christ child, who is our perfect shepherd king. Don't you think the Bible could have used a million different pictures to talk about us, right? But it chooses sheep again and again and again. Don't you think that's an apt picture? No, because you, nobody, who wants to think of themselves as sheep? But guess what? God's like, you're a sheep, right? And I'm a sheep. In our culture, we want to be lions, right? Or bears, or conquerors, right? But the Bible says we're sheep. <laughs> because why? Because sheep need leading, and they need to be together in flocks. They need protection. They need provision. Because what happens when a sheep wanders? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's something sheep tend to do, right? 
They wander off, they try to find their own food and drink, and they end up with like a dirty puddle, and they get sick, they leave themselves vulnerable predators, or you know, they could be cast, have you ever heard of being cast before? You know, there's just something sheep do, they flip on their back, like turtles, and their feet are sticking straight up in the air, and they're helpless. They can't turn themselves over. They, they just, and the more they fight, the, the quicker they die. And they can't right themselves, they're helpless. And if a predator comes, guess what? He's feasting, Right? They need what? A shepherd to come and write them or they'll die within hours or it could even take days. Jesus is the shepherd who comes and writes us then says, come and follow me. And in his leadership is found clear streams of water and food to the full and protection. Friend, I wonder, are you following him in this moment? Is he your shepherd truly? Are you wandering? The worst thing a a sheep could do is wander. Is that you? The story is telling us that God has looked at you, and he has looked at me, and he has seen our helpless wandering, and he's telling us there's no life in the wandering. You won't find it there. But you'll find it here in the perfect shepherd king that I am providing But what's also made clear to us in this text is how people respond to this message of Christmas. Did you notice that? The responses here? Joel Green, in his commentary, says that he goes so far as to say the purpose of this section is to provide interpretive responses to the birth of the Christ child. In other words, after we see that the message for us, as we put ourselves in the shepherd's shoes, the question is being asked of you from this text, how will you respond? What do the shepherds in Luke 2 do? You know, they they hear this word from the angel. They see myriads and myriads of angels. We aren't told how many, right? It just says multitudes, just that there are a ton, right? They're singing praises to God for what he is doing in the world. And this is just conjecture on my part, okay? The text doesn't say this, but my assumption is that when he says multitudes of heavenly hosts, it's saying all the angels there are. Like, I don't think anyone's on the bench for this one, Right? They're, they're, they're all there. All the angels are here. They're glorifying God at this world-shattering event. And the shepherds see this, and they look at each other after the, the angels go away, and what do they say? We got to go to Bethlehem, right? And we got to see this child. And they make haste. Another Christmas movie I thought of when I was pondering this, another one of my favorites is Elf. You guys like Elf? Do you remember when Buddy was in the store and the store manager was talking to him, and Buddy's like smiling the whole time. And he's like, why are you smiling? And Buddy's like, I just like smiling. Smiling is my favorite. Right? Then a few seconds later, the manager announces over the speaker that Santa was coming the next day. And Buddy freaks out. Right? He's like, Santa! And he tells people he, he knows him. Right? He's like, I know him. <clears throat> and he looks at this dude who's near who obviously also heard the announcement too, but he's telling him, hey, you know Santa's coming tomorrow? Then the next day, when Santa's supposed to be there, what does he do? He, like, rushes to go see him, right? Without delay, with excitement and joy. What permeates these first two chapters of Luke is joy. Yes? There's a lot of singing and dancing here. And the angels even tell the shepherds, don't be afraid. Do you see how what they say? Instead of being afraid, be joyful, because this is good news of great joy for people like you. 
For those who know Jesus, smiling should be their favorite. Right? Which isn't to say there's no room for lamenting or sadness or any such thing, but that the Christian's life should be marked by joy. A joyless, grumpy Christian who constantly focuses on the bad or is constantly complaining is a contradiction. But in Elf, Buddy also is overwhelmingly excited to hear that Santa's coming, right? And even though he knows him, he goes straight away to see him, and he can't help but to tell people about Santa's arrival, even people who already have heard it. This is what the shepherds do. This is what we should emulate. They are joyful. They make haste to see what the Lord has announced to them of their shepherd and their king and their Lord. And when they go to Bethlehem, after they find Jesus, what do they do? They tell other people. They can't help but to tell the whole stinking town. And you better believe that after their experience with the angels, after seeing Jesus, they told people the rest of their lives. Then after their encounter with Jesus and speaking to Mary and Joseph and telling the folks in town, they returned, verse 20, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. They were amazed. They were changed and giving glory to God and singing and praising and all of those things characterize us. That is, if we have encountered the true Christ. The shepherd's amazement should be matched by our own, don't you think? They were given the word of the Lord. They had seen how God keeps his promises, and they obeyed without hesitation, without delay. When you consider the enormity of the message given and who it's given to, what other responses are warranted besides what we see in the shepherds and in Mary who treasured up and pondered the meaning of all this in her heart? What else makes sense? These these things should be pondered and then act upon, don't you think? This isn't a message you just hear and are like, oh, that's cool. This is a message you shout about. Use your inhibitions over. You tell people about it. And you look at the shepherd king and you say, command me, my Lord, I will obey and I will follow because I was a dirty sheep without a shepherd and you cleaned me up. And you show me the way and you show me where to get food for indeed you are food. Because here's the thing, and you know this, don't you? You will respond to this message somehow. Do you know that? You're going to respond. You can't leave here and not respond. There's no option available to us to not respond. Everyone encounters the God who became incarnate in order to be the king and shepherd and ransom for wayward humanity does something with it, whether good or bad. Because did you notice that there are other people who are told about the birth of this long-awaited Messiah, but they don't do anything with that info. Did you notice that in the text? Verse 18, we're told that the shepherds spread the news to and fro throughout Bethlehem as they should have, as we should do, and all who have heard wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now, you see that word wonder? That doesn't mean faith in Luke and Acts. It does create the possibility for faith, but having wondered is not the same as believing. Daryl Box says in his commentary, Luke is saying the report caused a stir and circulated, not that the city responded correctly to the birth. The report tickled the crowd's ears, but it may have missed their heart. However, the shepherds did believe Jesus' birth brings a variety of responses. Not only that, but we see in the angel's song of verse 14, what? 
that salvation is for those with whom God is well pleased or with those who respond humbly to the message of salvation through Christ. Do you know what that means? It means that salvation and its fullness are not automatic for everyone. Not everyone will believe and not everyone will submit to Christ as shepherd and king and thus they are lost. The fact that it is for those whom God is well pleased means that there are people with whom God is what? Not pleased. But now make no mistake, God is not well pleased with us because of us. He is well pleased with us because of Jesus. So it isn't that some are good, right, and some are bad. Some are good and God is pleased with them and some are bad so God isn't pleased with them and thus they are damned. The truth is that apart from Christ, God is not well pleased with anyone. I remember hearing, I think it was Steve Brown, and he was talking about how uh, he, hadn't, he used to think when he started pastoring that there are two kinds of people in the world, right? There are good people who go to church and do their religious duty, and there are bad people who, you know, mow their lawn on Sunday instead of coming to church, right? Those are the bad people. But he said, I hadn't been a pastor long that has realized that I was wrong about their, the, who the categories were, but I was right that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are two kinds of people in the world, those who know they're bad and those who don't, right? Those who know they're bad know they need Christ, and because of Christ's account, God is pleased with them. Now, let's continue our movie illustrations, all right, with one more. This one, maybe not, you haven't seen. Fred Claus? Yeah. <coughs> it made like 20 bucks at the, at the <laughs> box office. It's basically about Santa's relationship with his brother, Fred, okay, uh, who's a screw-up, right? Fred's a screw-up, and he's jealous of his brother. One of the big conclusions to the movie is Fred teaching Santa that there are no bad kids, okay? They're all, all kids deserve to get a toy. So, of course, they play on the idea of Santa have that, having that weird list, right, where some kids are naughty and some kids are nice, and it's the ones who are nice who get the gifts, right? Well, here's the thing about God, okay? He ain't Santa, all right? Like sometimes people portray him like a cosmic Santa who gives good things to good people and bad things to bad people, and if you do good, he'll reward you. That's not the gospel, okay? That's called karma, and it's reindeer excrement, all right? If God did have a naughty and nice list, if he did, every single person who has ever existed would be on the naughty list, and there would be one name on the nice list, Jesus. And we cannot earn our way onto the nice list. Only one person ever deserved to be on the good list, and it's Jesus. But here's my point. Those who hear the message of God coming in the flesh to save wayward humanity and respond with humility saying, I am needy, I am the weak, I am the broken, I'm a sheep without a shepherd, I'm on the naughty list, and I deserve to be, and I submit to God's Messiah. It is those whom God is well pleased. Because when he looks at them, he sees Jesus and his righteousness. And he accepts them gladly and lovingly like the father in the parable of the prodigal son running down the road to throw his arms around their neck. But some people hear the message of Christmas and they hear the gospel and they may even respond with excitement and wonder and tickled ears and they may even say they have believed but they never could quite release the hold on their lives. 
And they never could quite accept Jesus as shepherd and king because they feel more equipped for the job. And they never could quite care about obeying. And they never could quite glorify God because they wanted the glory for themselves. In one case, you have those saved by God because of God. In other case, you have those damned because of themselves. Those are the choices. Uh, it's, it's simply not enough to hear and have wonder. You have to admit you're a sinner. And you have to admit your inability. And you have to submit to God's king. Kent Hughes said on this, it's not enough to hear about Jesus. It's, it is not enough to peek in the manger and say, oh, how nice, what a lovely scene. It gives me such good feelings. The truth is, even if Christ were born a thousand times but not within you, you would be eternally lost. The Christ who was born into the world must be born in your heart. Religious sentiment, even at Christmas time, without the living Christ, is a yellow brick road to darkness. The thing is, you must respond to this message. You just have to. There's no middle road. Either you will feel the force of God coming in flesh and dying in your place to bring you reconciliation with God because that's how hopelessly lost you are and thus hand your life over in glad submission to the shepherd king or you will hear this message and say, no, thank you. I'll retain control over my life. I'm doing a fine job. Thank you very much. And you will continue in your rebellion. Those are your only two options. There's no, there's no third option of giving marginal assent and half-hearted followership to a king like this. There's no space for mental assent devoid of functional submission. Tim Keller put it so well when he said of Jesus, he is both rest and the storm, both the victim and the wielder of the flaming sword, and you must accept him or reject him on the basis of both. Either you'll have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. The one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. Don't try to keep Jesus on the periphery of your life. He cannot remain there. Give yourself to him, center your entire life on him, and let his power reproduce his character in you. Mary and the shepherds are models of faith for us here. They show us the right response to such earth-shattering news. That their lives are changed. That their, their hearts are re reordered. Their earth is shattered in the best way possible. And so they treasure it in their hearts and they obey gladly and without negotiating terms. They make haste to do what the Lord said and they tell people about the greatest person they've ever encountered because they are beggars and they want to tell other beggars where they got bread. I wonder, friend, is that how you've responded to the story of Christmas? It's what makes perfect sense to such unfathomable news of God in flesh, doesn't it? Maybe it isn't how you've responded. Maybe it's how you have. In either case, there's an invitation to us in this text to help give us renewed zeal for the gospel, renewed adoration to so beautiful and mighty and humble and awesome a king like the only unique son of God from the feeding trough which ended in a tomb and a conquering resurrection or maybe to be ruined by him for the first time. <clears throat> the answer and the invitation is here for everyone no matter who they are or where they find themselves spiritually right now and that is to behold. Behold. 
Isn't that what the angel told the shepherds to do? Look again at verse 10. Fear not. And then they're given something they should do instead of fearing, which is what? Behold. Behold what? Good news of great joy. Don't fear. Behold instead. Here's good news. Here's something that should cause you great joy and replace your fear. Here's the news that is for you. God in the flesh has landed. You remember in Narnia, all the kids were afraid. There's darkness everywhere. It's always winter, but never Christmas. The evil white queen seems to be ruling without any hope of stopping her. And the kids are given the simple assurance, Aslan has landed. Aslan is on the move. How do you stop fearing? How do you stop being afraid of the darkness that may be surrounding you? Behold. Aslan has landed. Aslan is on the mood. If you behold, truly behold. Now I'm not talking about just merely thinking about it or or reading the story or remembering the story. I'm saying really behold. Consider and treasure these truths. Ponder them in your heart. Really allow the story of Christmas, the truth that God has come in flesh in the humblest means possible to save the weak and lost and afraid, permeate your heart and thoughts. let, Let those truths sink deep down into your very bones. Let the full force of these truths hit you in the mind and heart. It it is then that you are beholding. And this beholding will remove the fear that has dominated your life. Tim Keller says this, to the degree that you truly behold, gaze at, grasp, relish, internalize, rejoice in the gospel, to that degree, the fears of your life will be undermined. I don't know what you're fearing right now. I don't know what darkness you may be going through. But may I suggest that whatever it is, you consider beholding this gospel again. Am I saying all your problems will melt away instantaneously? Not at all. But I'm saying that letting the truths of God come in flesh to get to a ragamuffin like you, to shine the bright light on you who was sitting in darkness and that your past and your present and your future all rest in his sovereign and loving hands, letting those truths sink in, it will help chase away the fear. Because what then is there to fear? Everything, get this truth, okay? Everything rests in the providence of the God who did all of this for you. Need he prove any more how much he loves you? Need he prove any more how much he cares about you? Look what he did. He wrote himself into your story and said, there's no life out there in the wandering. Come to me and I will be your shepherd, savior, and king. Will everything suddenly get better? No, in fact, they may get more difficult. But at least while you're navigating the trials and sources of your fears, you'll remember you have this Jesus with you and leading you. And he's at the helm of the universe the, the one who rules over all things, including your life and your circumstances, with meticulous sovereign providence, is the one who loved you so much that he entered flesh and died for you. What are you afraid of? And because Jesus did all that and was forsaken of God on the cross on your behalf, that means he will never, ever, 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 ever forsake you, no matter what. 
friend, today, would you behold this Jesus and this move of God to get to you? And would you respond to it? I mean, you will respond to it. (laughs) But will you bow to this shepherd king or will you just wander and move on? Living life the same as you did before. This is a glorious gospel. Yes? And it requires a full-hearted response. The truth of Christmas demand more from those who believe it's truth than half devotion and marginal cultural Christianity that dominates the landscape. This extravagant gospel requires an extravagant response. Don't you agree? This week I came across a post online from this fella, Joseph Bottom, and he tells about how he had a friend. He had a friend who was a very godly fella, okay? But he was tired of all the commercialization of Christmas, you know? And he was sick of all the, you know, pomp and circumstances and the lights and the decorations. And uh, to keep his attention focused on the purpose of Christmas, he would just go outside and he'd find this small branch, just one branch, and he'd put it in a pot every year. So he doesn't get distracted by all the trappings of the extravagant Christmas decorations and celebrations. And so says the author that this is commendable, what my friend did, but it's also wrong. This is what he says. I love this. He says, give me the vulgarity of inflated reindeer bobbing out on the lawn. Give me trees drooping under the weight of their ornaments. Give me snow piled to the rafters. Give me houses so lit up that neighbors dream at night of sunstroke. Fruitcakes so dense they threaten to develop their own black hole event horizons. Gingerbread cottages and mouse king nutcrackers and wreaths on every door and silly Christmas cards and eggnog so nutmegged that the school children carolers cough and sputter as they try to manfully gulp it down. Tastefulness is just small-mindedness pretending to be art, is what he said. And he said, and Christmas isn't tasteful, isn't simple, isn't clean, isn't elegant. Give me the tacky and the exuberant and the wild to represent the impossibly boisterous fact that God has intruded into this world. Yes, Christmas has been over-commercialized. Yes, we can be distracted very easily from the point of Christmas, but there's something very right in what Bottom was saying because what are we supposed to do with the truth that God came into the world? And this fact swallows up everything else and such exaggerant truths, such incredible life-changing Facts should be met with a response that throws tastefulness and tact and introversion right out the window. Friend, God became man. And he chose to do it in the most unexpected way possible so that you would know that this kingdom is different and that he welcomes messed up people like you and me. And he suffered and he died and he stood in your place, and he was buried, and he rose, and he ascended, and he rules, and he reigns, and he adores you, and he loves you, and he cherishes you, and he sees you, and he knows you, and he says, come into my kingdom, and you don't deserve it, but I do, and I moved heaven and earth to get to you, and so release control over your life and submit to me as your only good, and I will be your all in all. That calls for a response that says, yes, Lord. 
Be my savior and my champion and my shepherd and my king and my everything. Now that I have beheld you, I want to behold you more and more and tell people about you and obey you and sing about you and praise you and live for your glory and give you my everything. That's the response to truly beholding the truths of Christmas. Will you respond that way today and every day for the rest of your life? You know, we noted last week how Luke shows us here at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is wrapped, right? And he's wrapped in linen, and he's laid in a stone feeding trough. And he shows us towards the end of his gospel, Jesus being taken off the cross after his substitutionary death, and him being wrapped, and him being wrapped in linen, and him being laid in a stone tomb. And we also saw that one of the things the feeding trough points us to is that Jesus is true food and true bread for those who hunger. And so today we celebrate both the incarnation of Christ and his atoning death by partaking in the Lord's Supper. Remember that to have a, a full picture of Christmas, we need to remember both the incarnation and the cross and the empty tomb and the ascension and Christ's return to make all things new. 